It's so frightening, Brendan, and, uh, you know, just in the last few weeks, I've learned more and more about the FBI's intervention, uh, basically intervening in the election on behalf of Joe Biden. There's no other way you can look at it. And not only did they they bury it before the election, but they buried it after the election. So uh, I think the cover-up is just as bad a story, if not worse, than the original scene. Hello, welcome back to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Miranda Devine. Miranda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brendan. I'm thrilled to talk to you. So it's brilliant to have you on. I haven't spoken to you in a very long time. I think the last time I spoke to you was probably in an Australian capacity. We used to have your newspaper columns in Australia, radio, TV. Now, of course... You're at the New York Post making a storm in the Big Apple, writing loads of good stuff. And I want to really talk to you about some of that stuff today. And I think that the thing I want to kick off with has got to be Hunter Biden. You you literally wrote the book on Hunter Biden, your book, Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. And my first question to you is is just if you could explain to listeners who may not know why the Hunter Biden laptop is an important story. Because the thing I find really striking is that some people are still in denial about the fact that this is an important scandal. So currently, My Son Hunter, the new movie is out. And even some of the reviews of this movie are saying things like, this is a nothing burger scandal. It's not important. Why the hell are people making films about it? It really shouldn't register on our minds at all. So to kick things off, could you just give an outline of why you think this scandal is an important one? Well, look, I think it's funny uh, the way you describe how um, mainstream media and the establishment is dismissing this story. Uh, It's because it is such a bombshell that the cover-up uh, began within hours of our running the first story uh, in October 2020 that came out of the laptop. Um, if you remember, there was big tech, basically Facebook and Twitter, both worked in concert uh, within about four hours of our story going live on October 14, which was three weeks before the 2020 presidential election. Mm. Uh, they, they censored us, they shut it down, um, Twitter locked the New York Post account for two weeks until a couple of days before the election. And uh, and at the same time, you had, you know, this sort of intelligence establishment, these former uh, CIA directors, 51 former intelligence officials all up, wrote this completely bogus, dishonest, shameful letter mm-hmm. uh, four days after our story broke, saying that it was had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. And that letter was used then by Joe Biden in the last debate against Donald Trump two days later to dismiss all the revelations that the New York Post had brought from his son Hunter's abandoned laptop, Mm. to dismiss all of those as Russian disinformation, when in fact what they showed was that... uh, the Biden family, that was Hunter Biden and his uncle Jim Biden, Joe's younger brother, had raked in tens of millions of dollars from America's adversaries, from China, Russia, then Ukraine, uh, and Romania, I mean, so on, the countries around the world, uh, but mainly China and Russia. And uh, that money 
had gone into the, it's basically the family grift, which is selling uh, Joe Biden. This has been going on for, te- for decades since he first became the senator for Delaware 40 years ago. Uh, he uh, was using his family to basically make money off his power and influence for implied favours for oligarchs uh, overseas or, uh, you know, Chinese trillionaires. Of course, everyone in China is involved with the Chinese Communist Party, so it's basically any favours were done for China. Um, and this this sort of grift, this influence peddling uh, operation that was the family business just went into overdrive when Joe Biden was plucked out of nowhere to become Barack Obama's vice president. And uh, he was just flagrantly abusive of his power. And he would, in front of everyone's noses, bring Hunter, his wayward, drug-addicted scoundrel of a son, he would bring him on Air Force Two to Beijing, shake hands with his business partners, introduce him to Xi Jinping and all the important people in the Communist Party. Um, on this one trip in 2013, Joe Biden came away empty-handed from all the very important business that he was supposed to do with a China, um, such as stopping China from militarising those islands in the South China Sea, which now threaten Australia and Japan and Taiwan, all those countries, and also to stop China from stealing all of America's intellectual property. That's gone on apace. And uh, he, he achieved nothing of that. But what he did achieve on behalf of his son was that Hunter walked away uh, with a 10% stake in a an equity fund with the Chinese government that um, had a couple of billion dollars in funds under management. And that was just one of the the lucrative deals that um, Hunter and Jim Biden extracted from uh, their place in the orbit of Joe Biden. And Joe Biden knew what was going on. He was involved. He met with Hunter's overseas business partners. And that was what we had published, emails from a Ukrainian uh, executive of a corrupt energy company that was paying Hunter Biden a million dollars a year. Joe Biden met with that executive in Washington, D.C. when he was vice president, so this email showed. And, uh, you know, the, the Biden campaign just ran away. Joe Biden hid in his basement for three or four days. They never denied it. They said, well, there might have been a meeting, but it's not on the official record. Well, it was a dinner. You'd hardly forget a dinner at Cafe Milano, an Italian restaurant in Georgetown, uh, when Joe Biden met not just Hunter's Ukrainian business partner, but also Russians, uh, Kazakhstanis. Uh, It was part of a pattern of Joe meeting Hunter's business partners. And Joe Biden lied during the campaign when he said, I know nothing about my son Hunter's overseas business dealings. Yeah. I mean, that, that is such a good summary of what is a pretty extraordinary scandal in it by any judgment and any measurement. And I think um, one of the most staggering things, which I want to come on to shortly, is the fact that, you know, people spent such a long time saying that Trump was essentially a Russian stooge put in the White House by Moscow, when in fact it was Biden and uh, particularly Hunter Biden and their connections that were connected with the Chinese Communist Party elements in Russia and so on in in a fairly intimate business-orientated way. But before we get into that 
first off, you really outlined there that there are two elements to this scandal in a way. Firstly, there's the contents of the laptop and what they have over time helped us to learn about how the Bidens operate and their business deals and some elements of shadiness in relation to all of that. But then aside from the actual contents, there's the response of the establishment, the response of the new elites to these revelations. And you mentioned there the extraordinary censorious assault that was launched on the New York Post, the newspaper that you write for, which um, exposed the laptop story in October 2020. And as you say, you the New York Post was locked out of its social media accounts. People were physically prevented from sharing this story for a period of time. And more recently, I find this so disturbing, Mark Zuckerberg admitted in a discussion with Joe Rogan that the FBI basically called him up and said, listen, we think some Russian misinformation is going to come out soon, so keep an eye out for that. And it turns out that they were really given an advance warning of the laptop story, the laptop scandal. I mean, this is really extraordinary stuff, isn't it, in terms of the way in which various elements of I guess you could call it the deep state and the political establishment and the media elites kind of got together to ensure that this story on the eve of the presidential election just wouldn't get out there. It's so frightening, Brendan. And, uh, you know, just in the last few weeks, I've learned more and more about the FBI's intervention, Mm -hmm. uh, basically intervening in the election on behalf of Joe Biden. There's no other way you can look at it because what we know is that Rudy Giuliani, who was, um, you know, the former mayor of New York, he was the one who gave me the laptop or the hard hard drive, um, the copy of the laptop. Um, He was the one who was contacted in late August of 2020 by the repair shop guy who had the laptop that Hunter had abandoned um, basically in April 2019. And we know now that the FBI was spying on Rudy Giuliani's cloud, all his emails and text messages, from uh, a few weeks after he became Donald Trump, then the president's personal lawyer. So the the FBI presumably was trying to spy on the president. I don't know, but, I mean, they were spying on his lawyer for two years. And during that two years, they would have seen the email that came to them, to to Rudy Giuliani, from the laptop repair shop guy. They would have seen the text messages that I had with Rudy that were, you know, not terribly detailed but certainly would have given you an indication when the New York Post was going to be running the story. Mm -hmm. So they were well forewarned. Um, And then you piece that together with Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook boss, And what he told Joe Rogan a few weeks ago when he said that the FBI had been quite explicit in its private warning to Facebook. They came, the FBI, to Facebook and they warned them that there would be Russian disinformation, but in a form that they described in such detail that as soon as Facebook saw our story break on October 14 uh, on the front page of the New York Post, they immediately moved to censor it. And so I asked the FBI after uh, this Zuckerberg revelation to Joe Rogan, I asked them, what exactly did you warn Facebook about? Uh, Was it uh, to do with Joe Biden? Was it to do with Hunter Biden? Did you mention a laptop? Did you mention Ukraine? 
And their response was very telling in its omissions because all they said was it did not mention Hunter Biden. Right. (laughs) Then you add that together to the FBI whistleblowers, 14 of them, I believe, who have come forward Mm -hmm. to Republican congressmen who are promising to open up all sorts of inquiries and hearings uh, in January of next year if they take back the House. And those whistleblowers have said that they've named an FBI agent called Tim Tebow and an analyst called Brian Orton who buried information about Hunter Biden. And it's not just about the laptop, which the FBI had had since December of 2019 when the repair shop guy gave it to them. But it's also the testimony of uh, one of Hunter Biden's and Jim Biden's former business partners, an unimpeachable witness, a guy called Tony Bobulinski, successful businessman, but also a naval veteran from a family of proud naval veterans. He has um, a top secret security clearance from the the NSA and also from the Department of Energy. Um, You know, very difficult to find fault with this guy. And he came forward before the election, gave a press conference after our stories had been uh, censored, just to say that he knew from from his dealings with Hunter Biden, Jim Biden and Joe Biden, that um, that everything we'd written was true and that Joe Biden was compromised by China. Mm. And he then went and had a five and a half hour interview with the FBI, handed over the contents of three phones with you know, emails and text messages and encrypted messages that overlapped with the material on the laptop. Um, So confirmed a lot of the laptop material, the China stuff particularly, um, but also buttressed it, you know, augmented it with documents that we didn't have before. And he handed all that information to the FBI. This was 11 days before the election. Mm. And what he was worried about was that the American people would go to that election not knowing the truth about one of the two candidates. You know, it's not about stopping Joe Biden. It's just about saying, look, this guy and his family took in tens of millions of dollars from China and other countries. Um, And, you know, what was the quid pro quo? And he wanted that story out there and the FBI buried it. And not only did they, they bury it before the election, but they buried it after the election. So uh, I think the cover-up is just as bad a story, if not worse, than the original sin. Yes, I think that's a, that's a very important point. And one of the things I find most extraordinary about this entire story is that we were told for so long that uh, Russia was interfering in American politics and Russia was ensuring that uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 didn't have a chance of getting to the White House and instead Trump would get there. But it seems that the interferers in American politics were far closer to home. And as you say, the FBI seems to have played a questionable role. We now, of course, have a situation where Trump's properties are being searched and there does seem to be a a fairly jumped up effort to ensure either that he won't stand again or can't stand again. And one of the things that I find striking about all of this is that the liberal establishment, the liberal elite, or however we want to refer to them, the kind of East Coast elites who 
really ride on the wave of having been the exposers of Watergate. That's really been their great selling ticket for the past 50 years. You know, they make movies about themselves. They pat themselves on the back all the time for being the, you know, the decent liberal journalistic establishment that stood up to Nixon, stood up to corruption. And yet you have a scandal like this, which is pretty enormous. And as you say, the cover-up is, is, if anything, larger than the scandal itself. And they are quiet. They are silent. They, In fact, they are conspiring in ensuring that it doesn't become the big story that it ought to become. And the New York Times famously poo-pooed the, the laptop story. And then a, f- a couple of years later, in passing, mentioned the fact that the laptop was actually real. It might be a proper thing. We might need to pay attention to it. How do you explain so that reluctance? and depressing. Yeah. Um, look, I think initially the reluctance was, you know, maybe understandable because mm. um, when the story broke, it was so close to the election. Yeah. I think that um, Facebook and, you know, other media had been monstered by the left and the Democrats um, and blamed for Trump's win in 2016 because um, they had reported on Hillary Clinton's emails and uh, James Comey, the FBI director at that time, opened a new investigation um, into those shortly before the election. And that was all um, seen as uh, turning the election away from Hillary Clinton. Mm. So I think they were desperate to um, redeem themselves in the eyes of the Democrats, who are, are real bullies. I mean, the left, the Democratic establishment are in control of of the sort of prestige media here and they're punitive. You know, they will elevate and eulogise people who spin the right narrative uh, and they will just destroy the reputations of people they perceive as going against the preferred narrative. So so there was that, um, that they were sort of, you know, even journalistically I can sort of understand being a bit reluctant to touch this laptop because it was, it, you know, it took a real, a lot of courage from, you know, my editors at the New York Post to go with this because it could have blown up in our faces. But we were happy, you know, content that we had done enough due diligence and we verified these emails we were running by talking to the people, other other recipients, um, including Tony Bobolinsky. And, and there's also other material that, um, also fits together with the jigsaw puzzle that you know is undeniable, and it's uh, a couple of Republican senators had access to Treasury for financial reports from banks. These suspicious activity reports that tracks money coming in from you know oligarchs or corrupt people or sanctioned people into the Biden family coffers and their partners. So. We were, we were comfortable that we had enough, but maybe there wasn't enough time for the other media to mm. to prosecute this case before the election. Um, I, I, I think it's still unforgivable because it's just a roaring story. If you're yeah. just prosecuting normal journalism, how can you avoid this story? If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. 
This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com supporters. So Miranda, I think that's a really good outline of why the liberal media ignored this story, either because they just didn't have the time and the resources or the courage to look into a scandal that was pretty complicated, pretty complex. And of course, as you suggest, lots of them just didn't want to scupper uh, Biden's plans to get into the White House and to finally get rid of Trump, who they all hated, of course. But in addition to that, I also want to ask you about social media, because this to me is one of the most worrying elements of this scandal. We've touched on it already in relation to Zuckerberg and the FBI's contact and so on. But it does now seem that there is this layer of online technocracy, unaccountable billionaires in Silicon Valley, who could prevent one of the oldest published newspapers in the United States from sharing a story that was in the public interest, which could erect these barriers around one of the presidential candidates to protect him from uh, discussion and media exposure and commentary. Doesn't that, isn't that the kind of intervention in democratic politics we should genuinely be worried about? Completely. I mean, these, you know, unaccountable basically oligarchs, they're American Mm. oligarchs, Mm -hmm. people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and, you know, the Google guy, they get sort of dragged into Congress as they did after they censored the New York Post, but they don't really care. Nothing touches them. They are continually censoring Americans based on sort of advice or pressure that they're getting, we now know, from the White House over COVID uh, stories. And now we find that the the doctors that they were censoring were actually correct. And now the CDC is agreeing with some of their, you know, ideas that the lockdown was did more harm than good or that the vaccines didn't prevent infection. Uh, but if it wasn't a Fauci, you know, Dr. Fauci approved script, these people were banished from social media and they worked in concert with the administration. So you have here censorship that's dictated to these social media companies, which are now, you know, they're really the main ways that people talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for us as a media company, as a newspaper, we use social media. I mean, we it, it, it cost us money mm-hmm. when Twitter shut us down. This is an important part of our distribution network. It's the sort of the the public square where Americans talk to each other. And that is being shut down behind the scenes, whether it's the FBI, whether it's the Biden administration. I mean, it's just terrifying. It really is the outline that we're seeing of a totalitarian structure um, that rivals anything that we saw in Soviet Russia. uh, Because not only are we seeing censorship, but we're also seeing um, those people who indulge in wrong think being mm-hmm. rounded up and raided by the FBI or, you know, uh, described, denounced by the president 
um, in a primetime address just recently as semi-fascists. These are the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump. These are the the FBI agents who didn't want to get vaccinated. I mean, that was a good way of purging uh, conservatives from the FBI because often it was, I mean, it wasn't just conservatives, but a lot of Trump, maybe let's not call them conservatives, let's call them sort of anti-establishment or anti-authority people um, who thought for themselves, who just were fit and healthy and decided they weren't going to get the vaccine because it didn't stop transmission anyway. And these kind of purges are going on. They're really ideological purges in the military, in law enforcement, uh, and they're being orchestrated and um, assisted by social media. Yeah. And I think it's it's a really scary way for the authorities in the US to circumvent the First Amendment, which obviously forbids yeah. them from interfering in democratic free discussion and instead to get their friends in Silicon Valley to carry out the kind of censorship that they themselves would like to carry out, but they are restricted by the constitution. You you mentioned there Biden going slightly off the rails, even more so than normal with his commentary on semi-fascists and basically the way in which he's now viewing and speaking about a significant section of the American population. And it looks to me a bit like Hillary's deplorables comment on steroids. So you have a continuation of that kind of democratic establishment view of certain voters, certain American citizens as completely beyond the pale. Hillary put them in a basket of deplorables, Biden is saying that they are on the road to fascism. They're kind of half fascist in the way they talk about the world. He's also whipped up a lot of fear about domestic terrorism, which seems to me to mean, I don't know, very enthusiastic Trump supporters or people who take part in certain forms of protest. So is there now almost like a McCarthyite atmosphere in relation to how the Democrats are dealing with people they consider to be problematic and people who they consider to have the wrong views about the world. Yeah, that's a really good way of describing it as McCarthyism. You know, it, it's it's gone well beyond Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables, which yeah. was just kind of turning into social lepers, anyone who would dare vote for Donald Trump or be a Republican. No, Joe Biden's taken it to a much more sinister level uh, because saying, uh, calling Trump supporters or conservatives semi-fascist is really a green light to this new drummed up fantasy, this concocted threat of domestic terrorism because it is now being described by the president, by that director of the FBI as a, um, you know, the number one threat, national security threat, which is ridiculous at a time when you have a southern border across which we know that there have been um, dozens of people on the terrorist watch list who've, who've been apprehended and who knows how many others have just melted into the, you know, across the, the border and, and have melted into the community. And so it, there's, there's not enough domestic terrorism uh, on the right really to justify this kind of inflamed rhetoric. Uh, There's no um, equal description of the sort of Antifa BLM riots that convulsed the the country um, in the summer leading up to the 2020 presidential election that, uh, you know, we had about two dozen people killed. You had um, police officers maimed and blinded and attacked 
continually. You had cities set on fire. You had looting and rioting. I mean, I was in New York during that time and I can tell you it was terrifying because the police basically stood down and allowed um, these people to just run riot through the streets and, you know, it, you feel very vulnerable. And uh, people went out and bought a lot of guns uh, after that, those riots, and yet though nobody was really brought to account. There were um, arrests, but these Antifa members were let go. Uh, they decided they wouldn't bother prosecuting. Maybe it was too hard because they had masks on, whatever. That in stark contrast to the, the biggest FBI investigation ever into uh, the January 6th Capitol riot, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was a terrible event, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it, it wasn't worse than 9-11. It wasn't worse than, you know, the worst terrorist attack on America since the Civil War. I mean, there were, there were bombers uh, in the 1970s who bombed the Capitol, terrorists, um, actual terrorists. And so there were some stupid people, there were some violent people, no one's condoning what happened. But there were also a vast throng of people that have been caught up in the dragnet, have had their houses raided, um, who didn't go anywhere near the capital, who were just standing around outside on some lawn, which has now been designated um, post-facto, designated a, a restricted area, and therefore, you know, you can get rounded up by the FBI. It's a completely disproportionate response. But the FBI has been incentivized by a huge bundle of money uh, that's gone to them by, um, you know, the sort of rhetoric that that the, that the administration has been running for several months and is, which is now escalated as we're hitting the midterms to try and convince, uh, I guess, independent voters who've switched off from the Democrats that um, voting for Republicans, all Republicans, um, is akin to voting for Donald Trump, the fascist, and um, you know, it's the end of democracy as we know it. Yeah, that's very well put. And I think the double standard between how the BLM riots in 2020, which hit so many cities and destroyed so many communities in terms of shops and buildings and people's lives even, the way in which those are talked about in comparison to the way that the Capitol riot of 6th of January is talked about is just extraordinary. I remember there were pieces published during the BLM riots which said, look, uh, looting might be an understandable thing, and these, <laughs> these these are mostly peaceful gatherings, even though buildings are burning in the background. And then you have January the sixth, and I completely agree with you that it was a pretty terrible event and and very destructive and inexcusable, but much smaller in comparison in terms of the destruction that was caused and the number of people that were involved and so on. So that double standard is just pretty mind blowing and really quite revealing. And, and- you can tell um, how insignificant it was in comparison to everything else because they have to lie about it and say multiple police officers were killed. Uh, Not one police officer was killed, not one. The only person killed was a Trump supporter, an unarmed woman shot uh, in the neck by a a trigger-happy cop. Yeah, absolutely. Very true. Okay, Miranda, I have one more question for you, which is a pretty big one and probably can't be answered on a podcast, but we'll give it a whirl. It seems to me as a keen observer of America from outside that the divisions in the US at the moment are pretty intense. And politics, I mean, obviously there's always been clashes between Republicans and Democrats, just like there have always been clashes between Tories and Labour in in the UK and in Australia. Politics is a pretty intense hairy affair a lot of the time. But at the moment in the US, it does seem that the standoff between the different political wings 
is really deepening and getting quite uh, serious. Uh, the culture wars are getting serious too. Is there any way in which that divide can be mended? Is there any way in which politics can be brought back to the realm of reasoned disagreements between people who genuinely have different visions for how to run society, rather than what we have at the moment, which I think is largely currently being instigated by Biden and the people around Biden, which is the transformation of politics almost into a form of warfare, where it's about taking down terrorists which is how people are being described, rather than having a discussion about how to run society. How can that division be tempered and politics brought back to a kind of reasoned level? Look, I'll answer that from the point of view of um, my experience in Australia. And I, I just went back there recently to cover the the election in which the Conservative Party, so-called Conservative Party, was um, beaten by the Labor Party. And and there's not really much argument or discussion in America, in Australia. There's not much conflict. And I think um, from my observation from the outside, um, I think England, there's more conflict than in Australia, but still everyone's fairly civilised and reasonable and has these civilised debates. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that what you're seeing in America, as ugly and divisive as it is, yeah. is actually because Americans are fighting back against the encroachment of the left, which, you know, I feel like Australians are like frogs in boiling water. They, uh, and COVID just accelerated the process of that sort of long march through the institutions. And in America, they, um, they have their constitution, they have their gun rights, and they, there is a, a, you know, at least half the country, which is fiercely understands what's going on understands what the left is doing and that they are destroying freedoms, that this is an authoritarian uh, impulse. And I don't think they're overstating the case when they are saying that the Republic is uh, at stake. And so they are standing up to fight. And I'm not saying fight with their guns. Mm. They are just pushing back, whether it's parents at school board meetings who are now refusing to accept you know, this crazy gender fluidity stuff, the critical race theory that's dividing kids by skin colour. Um, parents are sick of that. They are pushing back. Whether they were Democrat voters or Conservatives, doesn't matter. They they all have the same feeling, which is they want to protect their children from this lunatic moment. And so therefore you had in Virginia, for instance, last year, a pretty democratic area right outside of Washington, D.C., um, they elected a conservative Republican governor. And I think this is what the Democrats are so terrified about. It's why they're upscaling the rhetoric. It's why they're jailing their political opponents. Um, and, of course, this, this was all brought to a head by Donald Trump um, because he was an outsider, because he just stuck his, you know, thumb in the eye of the establishment of the deep state. Um, he, he, you know, he bungled a lot uh he really was his own worst enemy, but he still did shine a light. And um, he didn't create the nationalist populist movement, but he certainly um, came to to lead it at, at a very important time. So what you say about the division and everything, it's not just going to go away And because mm -hmm. the only way it will go away and we will have calm and tranquility is if conservatives roll over to the left. This is a sort of an existential battle. Uh, a culture war, I guess, 
Um, and I think the, the midterm elections in November will be a crucial test to see if, A, the Republicans can win an overwhelming vote and then take control of the House and maybe even the Senate. And then it's a test for the Republican politicians to see if they can actually live up to their promises, if they actually have got the guts, the courage, the strategic mindset to be able to bring um, these corrupted institutions to account. Miranda Devine, thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.